belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for the week of January 24th, 2021 is called Understanding Hope. The speaker is John Ray and the location is 2828 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Hey, welcome everybody. Again, if you're listening on the podcast, we're really glad you're here with us, whether you're here in Northwest Arkansas or somewhere else. Um, thanks. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for giving this a listen. Uh, back in the 80s, when my family's restaurants were riding a wave of popularity, we hired a former Longhorn football player to work as a manager in one of our stores. But this just wasn't any former Longhorn football player. He was a star from that team in the late 60s and early 70s that won two national championships. His name was legendary among the group of players from that era. And I got to tell you, I was starstruck at meeting him. But I was also confused because I, I, I couldn't understand how how was this legend working for us? And why was he working for us in such an entry-level position? It's basically the same position I had at the time. How was he working at such an entry-level position? Well, I soon found out. You see, one night, my dad rented a box for a Houston Oilers football game and took a bunch of the managers down there. And, and as you get into these boxes back in that time, there was just free food and free drinks and free booze and all you could eat and drink. And it was a, it was a rowdy, raucous time. Um, all of us dug in and ate and drank heartily. Uh, but the new guy, this former football player, this star of my youth, um, he drank until he was sloppy drunk. And it was tragic, but I'll never forget the image of looking over and seeing him slouched in a seat with food spilled all down the front of his shirt, almost unconscious. And I don't even think it was halftime. Then I later learned that his alcoholism had cost him everything since graduating. Since the end of his football career, it cost him his job, cost him a marriage, cost him friendships. And my dad had given him this job at the request of friends as kind of a last-ditch effort to help him out. I don't think he lasted six weeks. You see. It taught me something watching that guy that I've seen happen over and over and over again. We as human beings are really good at making idols of all kinds. Some are made of wood and stone, some of football players and movie stars. And as we do this, we reduce them. We objectify and alienate them from what we consider real life. It allows us to keep the real God at arm's length while opening us up to the malicious machinations of a multitude of false gods and ideologies. And this has tragic consequences. Because if we make idols out of people, we are 
especially adept at keeping the real, actual God out of the mundane grittiness of real life. For some reason, we like this vast separation of the real and the spiritual. God has God's area. We have ours. Thank you very much. Well, this is not a new problem. We've been dealing with it since we left the garden. And we're going to see that reflected in our text today. So those of you who are joining who are just jumping in, we're studying the book of Isaiah. We're on chapter 7 this week. And we're looking at Isaiah's prophecy. Well, let's, let's get into the text. Now, in covering large chunks of text like this, we can't read every word. But we're looking at chapter 7. The first part of the chapter deals with King Ahaz being threatened by people from the northern kingdom. Uh, the, the part of Israel that broke off the 10 tribes to the north. And, uh, and let's pick this up because we're going to get into some very familiar passages. Um, jump down to verse 10. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Now, stop here just for a quick. Ahaz, we were dealing with Uzziah, the year of Uzziah's death last week. This is Ahaz. This is one of a um, Uzziah's son, and he was considered a an evil king in the history of the kings of Israel or of Judah. He co-ruled or ruled for approximately 20 years, and uh, he was characterized by cutting deals with the Assyrians, which we'll see in, in coming chapters, um, and also bringing Assyrian cultic practices into the temple. And this is why he has a very tarnished reputation among the kings. Let's go on. Verse 11. Again, the Lord is speaking to Ahaz and the Lord says, ask for a confirming sign from the Lord your God. You can even ask for something miraculous. But Ahaz responded, I don't want to ask. I don't want to put the Lord to the test. Well, that sounds spiritual right there. We even hear echoes of Jesus in the, in the wilderness saying, don't put the Lord to the test. But, but that's not what Ahaz is doing here. Ahaz is, is pushing away that responsibility. He's, he's trying to keep God at arm's length here, as we're going to see from Isaiah's response. So Isaiah replied, pay attention, family of David. Do you consider it too insignificant to try the patience of men? Is that why you were also trying to try the patience of God? For this reason, the sovereign master himself will give you a confirming sign. Look, this young woman is about to conceive and, give, and will give birth to a son. You, young woman, shall name him Emmanuel. And he will eat sour milk and honey, which will help him know to reject evil and choose what is right. Here is why this will be so. Before the child knows how to reject evil and choose what is right, the land, will, the land whose two kings you fear will be desolate. The Lord will bring on you, you people in your father's family, a time unlike since Ephraim departed from Judah the king of Assyria. Now, again, we, we hit this part where we hear this very familiar passage. Unto you, this, this, we hear it echoed in Matthew, right? This is one of the, the pronouncements that the angel makes to Matthew about this son being given, a virgin will conceive. Here it's young woman, but in the Hebrew, young woman and virgin are the same word. It's how you interpret it. A virgin will conceive, she'll give forth a, a son, his name will be Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. They knew that in this time as well. What do we do with this? Because later on in the chapter, 
we see that even though the people of Israel get a temporary respite here, ultimately, a hundred years later, they're carried off into captivity. They ultimately don't turn back to God. And there are consequences that follow. Well, this gives us a great opportunity to really look into how we interpret texts like this, what we call our hermeneutic, the, the process or the philosophy or the practice that we follow when discerning what the text says. And we're going to ask three basic questions here that we will throughout Isaiah. First of all, what did this mean to the original hearers? What did this mean to Isaiah, Ahaz, the people who were listening, the people of Israel, Judah at the time? And then we're going to ask, well, how did the, the first Christians interpret this? What did they hear when they read this? Because this this text struck a chord with them. And then finally, we're going to ask, well, what does it mean to us? What, what is the meaning for us as we look at this? Well, what we're going to see, I believe, as we come to these conclusions, is that God has surprising ways of, he shows up in surprisingly human ways. That God is always showing up in surprisingly human ways. Unlike other religions and philosophies, the God encountered in the Bible refuses to be reduced to a force. God's word refuses reduction to abstract formulas, just to a set of principles or rules. God's presence is always incarnate. It is always lived out with this. So, so let's, let's see if we can see why I believe those things. Well, first of all, what did this mean to the original audience? Uh, Ryan made the comment in our teaching meeting this week that the child who is mentioned here, this is the last we hear of them, this, this specific child. We have to understand that when Isaiah is saying this, he is literally pointing to a specific woman in the crowd. He's not just making a prophecy as we often interpret this, but he is speaking to a woman. He's pointing to a woman who is either already pregnant or maybe recently betrothed. And he says, this woman is going to have a child. And he turns to the woman again. He says, you woman are going to name that child Emmanuel. So, so it was a specific person in the crowd that he's talking here. And, and we understand also, that's the last we hear. Like, we never hear this child mentioned. He, we don't come back later in the story, and he's, he's not a John the Baptist type. He's not, a, he's not someone who goes on to something. Like, literally, the, his role in the story of God at this point is just to have Isaiah point at him and give him a name. We don't know what happened after that. The second thing is that it sets a specific time frame because he says, by the time this child knows basically is good from his bad, is left from his right, the whole situation which Ahaz and the people are all in uproar about is going to be solved. It's going to be done. So it has a, it has a, a start and a finish to a degree within the people that it's offered with that. The biggest thing, though, the interpretation here, I think, is that the people, Isaiah was trying to point the people to the knowledge that God was with them that God was not far off. 
that God was not distanced, but God was literally there in the midst of them working in real time with real situations for their deliverance. That this, this wasn't some abstract thing that they had to work up, that they weren't the ones doing it, that God was already in there working with that. That's how I think the original hearers would have heard this. But what about the first Christians? What did this mean? Because again, we hear Matthew repeat this prophecy or this passage um, when the angel is speaking to Joseph. And here's where I get super excited about this, because I think what the Christians did, the first Christians, when they saw this, after they had encountered Jesus, literally they saw this passage. They went back and reread Isaiah, and they were like, look, ain't that just like God? Ain't that just like God to show up as a human baby, as born of a virgin, as being given a specific name in a specific place, this radical re-understanding of who God is and how God works and that God is not some far off distant deity. He's not some idol made of wood and stone, but he is among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This, they understood, they, they went back and they reread Isaiah and they were like, of course God would show up. Of course, God would come as a baby. Of course, God would be born of a virgin like this. That's what he's been hinting at all through. That's what he's been calling us to all through history. So the, new, the Christians, the New Testament church, they understood this as being something more than probably the original hearers thought it was. They, they had more insight into it looking at it through the lens of Jesus, which is another thing that we talk about. We talk about the hermeneutic of the church, of Grace Church, is that we see everything through a Christological hermeneutic, which means we view Scripture through the lens of Jesus. Jesus, life, suffering, birth, death, ascension, all of that is what is our key to understanding Scripture. So while the people of Isaiah's time may not have understood it, we have greater understanding looking through the life of Jesus with this. And that brings us to this last part. What does this mean for us? Well, first of all, we get both. The really cool thing is like we get the interpretation that the original years had. We get insight into that. We get the interpretation that the early church had the first Christians. We, we get both of those things and more. Like we get the history of the church and we get our experience now, the lived out experience of 2,000 years of being Christians in this world. We have even more insight. We have another layer of depth to add to this. We, we, it's like we get the principle, we get the particulars, and we get the promise. We get it all with this as we look at this. And one of the first things we see is that God is always the hero of the story. This God is always working. This God is always involved. The God that we worship, the God that we, we've given ourselves to, to follow, to love, to adore, to worship. To, it, God is the hero. We're not. And this God is not made of, of human hands. He's not an idol. But he is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. He is God with us, and we're saved through 
by and for Emmanuel. That's what it is about. As God always has been, God is and God always will be working in the particulars and that God is close. Emmanuel, this name, God with us. Eugene Peterson writes, the only way that God reveals God's self is personally. God is personal under the personal designations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And never in any other way. Never an impersonal force or abstract influence. Never abstractly as an idea of truth or a principle. And so, of course, God can't be known impersonally or abstractly. Y'all, when we keep God contained in heaven or in a philosophy or in an abstract theology, we make an idol out of God. Or more precisely, we make an idol out of our ideas about God. The results are tragic. We live disconnected lives, lives with the illusion of righteousness, of wholeness, that are in self, that are in truth, Selfish, self-righteous, violent, compromised, and compassionless. These disconnected and deceived lives leave us powerless against the lies of conspiracists on the internet and in pulpits, powerless against the demonic forces of racism, division, abuse of every kind. It leaves us powerless against the idolatrous cults of personality, and defenseless against our own worst instincts, habits, addictions, and deceptions. God have mercy on us all. If we continue to make an idol, a depersonalized idol, out of God. God is Emmanuel with us. This is one of the reasons why we practice hospitality as a core tenet here at Grace Church. We we start with belonging, with welcoming very real, very human people into our fellowship. Not people as they should be, but people as they are. This allows us, everyone in the fellowship, to work together on becoming who we are created to be individually and collectively. We do this as an expression of what we believe, that God is Emmanuel, that God is imminent with us, active, alive, present among us, in us, and through us. Now, I rarely do this. I rarely do this. But I want to ask you right now, if you're listening to this, will you join us? Will you join us at Grace Church in this practice, we're not perfect by any means. And it's a weird time when we can't meet together. But as I, as I studied this passage, as we discussed it this week, I am more impressed than ever that the only way all of us, myself included, are going to fully experience and be able to respond to God is, if we, is that if we do it together, You can't do this alone. It's not a Lone Ranger project. And it's not done in the the context of just 
friends getting together. No, there has to be a greater commitment to the whole with this. Look, the church cannot become a dispenser of religious goods and services. And it can never be a place of simply learning things about God. The undeniable fact is that we can't encounter God without encountering God in, with, and through others. Grace Church, again, we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But maybe that's the point. Among these imperfect places and people, among these imperfect situation, that's exactly where God dwells. God dwells among us in the imperfection with that. And when God comes in, snaps out his soccer chair, sits down and says, all right, y'all, let's get at it. That's when we learn. That's when we learn. But we have to do this together. We have a whole history that shows God is doing exactly this. We have our own experiential evidence that this is exactly what God is doing now. And we have countless promises that this is exactly what God will continue to do until all things are reconciled. Again, Peterson says, he says, Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good, good behavior. Thank God, because we ain't here at Grace Church. We have our trials. We have our blind spots. We have our weaknesses. But we are committed to this process of practicing being a church where Emmanuel is known, where God with us is known. We risk everything on the promise that God is the God who says he is with us, God with us. Thank you for joining with us. Thank you for listening to this. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.